morning. Good to see everybody this Sunday morning. We, uh, you know, we've been meeting in this gym now for two weeks, and like Bruce said, and so every time we make a change, there's just you never know what you're going to hit in the morning. So I uh, appreciate the guys in the back. I like to cheer them on because they've been working hard to get everything running. So um, we're a portable church, and so everything we do gets you know we bring it in here, set it all up, tear it all down, and so. Um, the crew that, you know, rotates to help, uh, sometimes there's glitches, and oftentimes it's just related to new environments and things like that. And so they were working hard up until, you know, service was starting to make sure we were up and running. So appreciate you guys. Uh, today we're wrapping up this message series and letter to the church in Orange Crest. We've been, we've been looking at the letters to the churches in the book of Revelation. It's Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. There's seven different letters that are written, and what what... Some background on that is John, one of the followers of Christ, was exiled to an island. While he was there, Christ gave him a vision for some things that would happen down in the future, down at the end of time. You know how 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 history and time, everything would would be wrapped up. What would happen in those uh, end days? And in that in that vision, there was also these letters to be written to be given to churches in a place called Asia Minor. So we've looked at five of the different churches, and today we're going to wrap up looking at the two final churches who received letters from, from Christ. And the idea is that he was sending them a letter, not just saying, hey, what's up? Good to you know, know all of you. It was more like a, here's how you're doing. Here's the grade that I'm giving you for a church. He was evaluating their progress. He was evaluating the way that they were caring about their mission, their plans. And he was giving them basically uh, uh, praise or a warning, or judgment. And so, in these two churches, these are really the, the churches that got the positive grade, in a sense. They were given a good high mark. And so you would kind of expect that as we look at these churches, you know, just amazing things that are happening with them. You'd expect to hear great stories, happy people, smiling, hugging people. You know, just a warm, happy family. But you know what? When you read this, these two churches, you find out these aren't perfect churches. They got high grades, but they were far from perfect. And as a pastor, you know, I kind of would like a problem-free, perfect church, you know, where everybody's just always enjoying everything and people are just, they love each other and they're friendly and you know, there's no problems. But in reality, we, we realize that people, leaders, we make mistakes. People make mistakes. We have rough days. Leaders have rough days. You know, there's sometimes things go wrong. And you just realize, man, church is just not easy. It's not, it's not something that just coasts along, but there's challenges that crop up. But we often equate problems. When we see problems within a church, we often equate that as a church who's off track. Like if there's problems in these churches that we're going to read, we would assume that that was a bad sign. But in fact, as you study in, some of the greatest times of expansion for the Christian church were seasons of real trouble and difficulty and suffering and persecution. Those have been the times where some of the greatest expansion of the church has occurred. It's during times of, of difficulty, not during times of happy, you know, uh, seasons of just joy. In fact, you find the opposite. So, what we've tried to do since this series really looks a lot at the history of the Christian church and some of these churches that were addressed, tried to really provide some imagery. And so, there's some more images we're going to look at as we dive in. But, Here's what it says at the top of your outline. If you want, you can pull this out and follow along. But it's possible for a church to be persecuted and damaged. 
but be found faithful and approved. This is something we don't typically, in America, we don't typically think of this. But it's really possible for a church to be going through persecution and to be pretty beaten up and damaged, but still be found faithful by Christ and approved by Him. Throughout history, the more the church has been persecuted and gone through suffering, the greater impact it has had. And that's amazing to me. Because we in America, we don't experience that. But around the world, where there is suffering in the name of those who follow Christ, the church is making a great impact in those areas where it's illegal to spread the name of Jesus or to have churches. The church is still thriving. And I want to look at some of those. For decades, churches in like Eastern Europe... And here's a picture of a church. This is one of the state churches that was able to meet and gather. A state-sanctioned church approved by uh, the former Soviet Union. This is called Central Baptist Church. I actually spoke in this church about 15 years ago. Got to preach. and But before the Iron Curtain was lifted... And the communist era ended. Churches really had to be state-sanctioned or they were illegal. And so this was one of the few churches that was able to meet in Moscow. This was actually the oldest of those Christian churches that kind of went through that era and you know remained open. But they were monitored by the government. And what happened during that era when communism was ruling and, and there was a lot of control by the government... People left these kinds of established churches and they went and began um, underground churches that would meet and still reach people that wouldn't be monitored by the government. So here's another slide. People that were from that church. And then during the time when the government was controlling, many left. And this was one of those house churches that formed from groups of people within that larger church that just went and started new works. And now this is now modern day, but they're still meeting in this fashion. You know, churches... When the Iron Curtain was lifted, what you found out is in throughout cities in Russia, the church was still alive and thriving. The government wasn't able to control what God was still doing in people's hearts as they were still gathering and meeting. In China, another place, the church is exploding. Churches typically form in house church networks. And here's a house church in China. And now Christians are getting actually bolder and bolder in China and going more public with their faith. It's really interesting. Things are changing in China where uh, the government is not exerting the control that they once had. There's still, um, there's still uh, potential for problems on the church, but some of these house churches are actually um, networks of house churches that, that are one church, but they, they kind of spread themselves out. And so the pastor of this church, he actually um, recently gathered all of the house churches under this one church that he leads and he had them all gather for public services. They're trying to find a public place to meet, which is really, a, this is in Beijing, and it's this amazing thing that's happening there. The, the persecution is, uh, you know, the issues that they dealt with in the past are really changing. This, this church is, is uh, the, the overall church has a thousand people in it. But there's many of these churches that have been underground. And many of these people, they lived through very, very dark times when pastors were killed, Christians were, you know, they were beaten for the sake of Christ. People were arrested. There was torture that went on. And typically, when we hear about these kinds of things, we think, man, that's problems. I don't want to be a part of that kind of church. You know, that sounds crazy. People suffering for their faith. In America, when we think about that, we think, that's, that's craziness. That's fanatics. That's extremists. We don't typically think that that's a church who is on track. But... 
when we read these letters, these two churches in the book of Revelation, we find out that there's two persecuted churches that were on track. So let's take a look at these churches addressed in Revelation. The first one is a church in a place called Smyrna, which was an ancient Greek harbor town. It was a harbor city near Ephesus, said to be the most beautiful city in its time in Asia Minor. And here's a picture of it. You can't really see because they have only excavated a portion of the remains. But you can see a portion of the city. This is said to have been the birthplace of Homer. Not Homer Simpson, but Homer, the author of the Iliad of the Odyssey. And uh, said to have come from, from this place, Smyrna. Smyrna was on the coast and it stretched from the coast up into the hills. And it was covered, this city was covered with streets that were lined with temples to the different Greek gods, which was the main emphasis of, of the worship there. This place also worshipped the emperor. Here's a picture of one of the emperors, Domitian, that one of the emperors that was worshipped as a god. So a church was formed in this city. And it, I give you the history a little bit so that you understand the environment that they're planting a church in. It wasn't exactly a place where they wanted Christianity to spread because the belief there was that these Greek gods or the emperor were gods. And so the Christian belief in Jesus was really, it ran contrary. So there was real extreme opposition on this church in Smyrna. So let's look at what the Scripture says in Revelation 2, verse 8. It says, To the angel of the church of Smyrna, write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Jesus identifies himself using an Old Testament term, the title for God that you find in the book of Isaiah. And he says, he says, who died and he came to life again. It's interesting he uses that phrase. It's tied to the fact that the rest of this verse is going to talk about suffering. Now, Jesus is trying to encourage and comfort them saying, I'm writing this to you. I'm the one who died. That, that serves as a comfort to those who are going through suffering themselves. He goes on and he says, I know your afflictions. Literally, the, the pressure that they faced. They were being persecuted because they didn't, Worship the Greek gods, and they also refused to worship the emperor. So he says, I know your afflictions, I know your poverty, yet you are rich. This church was very, very poor. The church in Smyrna, the Christians there, because of their persecution, and because of everything that was being taken away from them for worshiping, they had no money, they had no resources. They were really relied on each other, and collectively they survived. And Christ is saying, look, you have what really matters, which is spiritual wealth. Spiritually, they weren't poor. Spiritually, they were rich. He says this. He says, I know the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. They, the Jews who, believe, who did not believe in Christ, who rejected Christ, didn't believe He was truly God and the Messiah that came to deliver God's people, many Jews didn't believe in Jesus. And so those that didn't believe, they slandered those who did. And so they began to spread lies about the church and the Christians who followed Christ. And the main lie that they spread in this church was that the Christians were cannibals. They said that the Christians in, these, in this church were cannibals because they ate, they ate and drank the blood of Jesus. And so they twisted something that is a memorial for the Christians. The memorial is to take what's called the Lord's Supper. You might know that as communion. Where you take bread and and juice or wine, and that symbolizes the death of res- the death of Christ. We remember the death. It's a time to reflect upon our relationship with Him and to kind of renew our relationship with Him, and also to examine our relationships with each other. 
And as the Christians practiced that last or the, the Lord's Supper, and they, they took these symbols that represented the body and the blood of Christ, the Jews would slander and say, they're cannibals. They want to eat Jesus. They want to eat people. And so this slander began to spread and, of course, created all sorts of controversy for the church. They're just trying to obey and here they're being slandered. And he's saying, Christ is saying, look, I know what's being said about you. Look at where it goes. The church also, they were commanded not to fear or fail during future testing. They were given a command to be, you know, to be strengthened, to, to hang in there. Something that was about to happen says in verse 10, Do not be afraid of what you're about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for ten days. So Satan's age-old plan is to destroy the church or to attack God's children and attempt to scatter and destroy our faith. And so Jesus was saying, you're about to be tested. Some of you are going to be suffering. Some of you will be put in prison. Then he says, be faithful, even to the point of death. And I will give you the crown of life. Now, most of us, we hear these verses again, and I think it's, it's so tough for us to really put ourselves in their shoes because we live in an environment that we're free to practice the religion of our choice. We're, we're free to worship God. We're free to sing praises to His Son Jesus. And we're free to just do what we do without any fear of you know, the government storming in here and, and beating any of us up. But this church was not free from that. So Christ is saying, look, don't fear and don't fail. Don't let your faith crumble in this testing point. Persecution in this place got really bad. Within 50 years of, this, of the letter that was written to them, the bishop, the pastor of this church, actually was executed for his faith. He would not denounce or renounce Christ. His name was Polycarp. And at the age of 86, what's this guy going to do at 86 years old well, apparently, enough that they would want to kill him. So the government rounded up. He, he refused to worship the emperor. And at 86, they put him on a, a stake to burn him to death. I'll read you a few things that he said. When, when, when Polycarp was asked to swear by Caesar to save himself, Polycarp, he answered and he said, If you imagine that I will swear by Caesar, you don't know who I am. Let me tell you plainly, I am a Christian. And because of Polycarp's lack of fear, the group, they told him, you're going to be burned alive. There's a picture of Polycarp here. You see it here. It says that he was tied up to be burned, and he prayed this prayer, which was recorded. I'm going to read this. This is his final words. It says, Lord God Almighty, Father of your beloved and blessed Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have received knowledge of you, God of angels and of powers, and of the whole, whole creation of the whole race of the righteous who live in your sight, I bless you. For having made me worthy of this day and hour, I bless you because I may have a part along with all of the martyrs in the chalice of your Christ to resurrection and eternal life, resurrection both of the body and the soul in the incorruptibility of the Holy Spirit. May I be received today as a rich and acceptable sacrifice among those who are in your presence as you have prepared and foretold and fulfilled. God who is faithful and true for this and for all the benefits, I praise you. I bless you, I glorify you through the eternal and heavenly high priest, Jesus Christ, your beloved Son, through whom be to you with Him and the Holy Spirit, glory now and for all the ages to come. And amen. And he prayed this prayer, and as he said, amen, they lit him on fire, but he wouldn't burn. The fire did not consume his body. 
God was, was doing something in that moment. They ended up having to stab him to death. He died. At the age of 86, though, legends, legendary faith like that only strengthens the faith of the faithful. And so the church in Smyrna, you know, you'd think this would cause them to all run for the hills. All this did was this just this built steel in them. And the people that really believed that God was going to do something in their city, and He was working in them to reach more people for, for Jesus, they didn't, they didn't fear. They didn't fail during that time. In fact, the church there actually has survived in Smyrna. And so here's a picture of one of the Christian churches there in Smyrna. This is actually modern-day Turkey in a city called Izmir. But this church remained faithful, and because of that, their ministry continues. You know, that, that is an amazing thing, that there are generational churches like this that will remain effective for generation after generation after generation. And the faith does not get watered down. It does not change over ages, but that if people will, will, will guard what has been entrusted to them, God can work for a long period of time in bringing about change. Another church is this. Another church approved by Christ was the church in Philadelphia. Here's a picture of the remains of this ancient city. This is the city of Philadelphia. It's the youngest of all the seven cities. There's very little known about this city. It hasn't been really excavated enough to know enough of the history. But one thing is, from the text, we learned that they were small in number. So though they were small in number, which is the point, they were small in number and despite hardship, they carefully obeyed the Word of God. They were a, a small band of Christians who decided they weren't going to let the size of their group cause them to buckle under pressure. So look at what they're told. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David, Jesus is referring to himself as one who has authority, basically. It says, what he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. God is in sovereign control over his church. He says this, I know that you have little strength. Remember, they're a small group. You have little strength, yet you have kept my word, and you have not denied my name. This was far from a mega church, but they were found faithful. They were pressing on, still sharing the message of Jesus to those they had opportunity to. And despite how small they were, the power of God flowed in their church. Which, for me, is a huge encouragement. People there were being redeemed. Lives were being changed. Work was getting done in this small church. And they were being commended. As a church planter, that's really encouraging. Because you know this, this Sunday, or this week, marked our third year anniversary as a church. And so... Um, when I read this passage and I think about a small group and what God does through a small group, it kind of takes me, it makes me think about just what God has done through uh, a small group like ours. And I remember when we were just um, seven adults and our kids and meeting in our house and then as God began to bring more people around, again, when you're small, you're extremely vulnerable. You're vulnerable for Challenges on the organization, relationally, financially. There's just all of these things that make it really a question mark of, is this thing going to get off the ground? Is this going to make any difference? But as we've seen God work, and just as we've seen people's lives being changed, and people coming to Christ, and just some of the things that God has done, it's such an encouragement. It just strengthens your faith to see what God can do with a, with a committed group of people. And this church in, in Philadelphia, they were small, but they held 
tightly, they clung tightly to the message that they were given. You know, it's interesting. We think about what we have. We have the ability to walk with God and we have Bibles. And, you know, we can even have, you know, you can buy these at bookstores and you can get pocket Bibles. You can get Bibles this size. You can get smaller. You can get bigger Bibles. You can get them on your iPad now. You can get them on your computer. You can get them on your phone. You know, we have the ability to just walk with God and it's very easy for us to have access to all this. But Christians in this, in those days, they didn't have personal New Testaments. Most of the churches didn't have copies of the, you know, the Scriptures. It was too expensive. The message was passed on primarily through oral just transmission. They, they had, this was the way they did it. They passed things on orally. But yet they held on to that message that they received. They made sure that they, that they got what it said and so they were able to pass it on. Because of that, this church was really commended. Look at what happened. They received promises as a reward for remaining faithful. They were promised some things would happen in their future. First off, they received the promise of a wide-open opportunity for expanding ministry. Christ is saying, look, I'm going to hold the door open so you can get more done for the kingdom. He says this, I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. It was like he was saying, look, I am going to go before you to create, I'm going to block for you. It was almost like God was saying, I'm going to block so you can get through. The message can get through. It's like he was running ahead of the running back in a sense. The church was, was, had God going before them, blocking for them to see that the message would penetrate people's hearts. And the, the promise was, hey, if you're remaining faithful, I'm going to keep this door open so you can get more and more work done. Again, that's an encouragement to me. If we will remain faithful as a church, both to the message that has been handed down to us, what we find in the Scripture, if we'll continue to build around that, and if we'll, if we'll band together in the way that we do relationships, the way we treat each other, God, what He's saying is, look, I'll hold the door open so you can get things done for the kingdom that will affect change for generation after generation so that my kids, your kids, their grandkids, so that people the effectiveness of a ministry can go far beyond any of our lives. And that, that's really the desire. We want God to just block for us so that the doors remain open for us to minister in this community. We have a, a great opportunity, I feel like, as a church. We're three years old and, and we're situated in, in a great part of this area of the Inland Empire. I feel like just where we live and just freeways and... The colleges, we have four colleges nearby. We have a growing community where it seems like there's more growth moving this way. And we have people coming to our church from a few different cities nearby. I mean, I just feel like God is saying the door is open wide for ministry if you guys will remain faithful. We have a portable church model. And sometimes for those of us who are involved in the process of setting up, that can kind of wear on you. But it gives us some flexibility as a church. The benefit of that is you know, if, if this place decides to shut down the doors, we can rent another place. We have the equipment that we can truck to a different location and we can set up. You know, the portability allows us some flexibility for this season. But the key to it is to remain faithful. Christ saying, stay locked on the message. Don't let go of the message. No matter what happens, no matter the pressure that is faced, hang in there. They got this other promise. The next promise was that some of their persecutors would come to faith. The church in Philadelphia, again, they were being persecuted for believing in Christ. And so the promise was that some people who were persecuting them would actually turn to Christ. Look at what it says. 
I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they're not, but are liars, I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. What he's saying is, their faithfulness would be rewarded in that some of the Jews that were not believing in Christ would actually connect with God through their ministry. Some of them would come and fall down at their feet. It was really an act of a symbol of submission to the message. And he's saying, look, some of the people that are, that are torturing you or tormenting you are going to come and join with you as brothers. Think of how that must have felt to see that promise actually unfold before them. To see former enemies turn their lives over to Christ and to begin to walk with God and to join with them in advancing God's kingdom. Um, sometimes we write people off and we think, man, that person is so far off track, they are never going to come to God. They're never going to trust their life to Jesus Christ. But God, He is in the business of actually changing our hearts. He's done that. He's done that in my case. He's done that in many of your cases. Where He's just turned our hearts towards them. And it seems like in, in times where our hearts can be extremely hardened towards responding to Him. But God is in the business of that. He's the one that actually changes our hearts. And that's a real encouragement. When we see that here in our body, it, it strengthens us. When we see someone who's come to faith in Christ, who for a season was resistant... That just strengthens us to know what God can do. And to know it's His work. He's the one softening people's hearts. The final promise they received was this. Protection from severe future testing. This church would be protected for some things that would come up that, again, could shake them to the very core. And so, look what he says in verse 10. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come upon the whole earth to test those who live on the earth. I'm coming. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. This passage right here has been used by scholars, uh, or scholars really divided over what this verse really means. Um, And I'm not going to get into the details of this because I don't want us to get too sidetracked here, but there's a phrase here, since you've kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from. That Greek can be translated keep you through or keep you from, like take you out from. The, the, the hour of testing or the trial that they were going through, the hour of trial, a lot of people think this is a reference to what, what is known as the rapture of the church. The rapture of the church is the idea that there's going to be a tribulation period that will last on the earth and that those who walk with Christ, the, the, those who believe in a rapture believe that the church will be raptured, taken up before this tribulation period where things, where God kind of lifts up His hand of restraint and allows some horrible things to happen to people. And that Christians who come to Christ during that period of time will be killed and all of these different things will go down. Um, that is a view. And there's, there's actually a handful of different views on the end times of what exactly will happen, what the timing will be. I'm actually not going to um, go into all that, but... The view that the church will be raptured is not a historically uh, Christian church view. The historical Christian church view is that the church would go through that period of tribulation. And the, the view of the rapture really is something that developed in the last 200 years. Um, and there, there's verses to support the view, but there's also verses to support a view that Christians would go through that period of, of, of tribulation. And so... You get to answer that question for yourself. I get to have my opinion on that as well. But 
The point, though, is that they would be protected. He's clear in that. You'll be protected during this hour of trial. This is one of those issues where the Scripture seems to not point clearly to the position. And so you kind of have to look at it and you have to make a decision for yourself. I personally would love to be raptured out with all the Christians at that point to not have to walk through a tribulation period. But at the same time, um, I understand that the forerunners of my faith, the followers of Christ, the, the 12 disciples, 11 of those 12 died as martyrs. They all were killed. Well, 11 of them were killed. One wasn't killed. They tried to kill him. He didn't die, so they exiled him to an island. That was John. If we get raptured out of here before that happens, then I think that's great. But if we don't, I don't want to be like, wait, God, I, I had a different opinion on the matter. And he didn't check in with me. So I bring all that up to say, uh, don't get hung up just on looking behind the veil and trying to figure out the mysterious things, but understand the most significant parts of this is to prepare ourselves for what will come down the road. Look at this. Here's some lessons from the churches. If you want to talk with me more about my opinion on that, um, and there's, there's very, very uh, well-known scholars that land in each of those camps. And so I'd be happy to dialogue with you if you want to know why I uh, hold a certain position on that. But here's the lessons I know we can take away from this. First, we must endure and keep pushing through difficult times. If we're going to follow Christ, we need to be careful that we don't expect Him to just magically erase trouble from our future. But I gave my life to Christ. Shouldn't I have a trouble-free future? No, not necessarily. In fact, trouble is a part of life. We're all going to walk through it. So we need to endure and just keep pushing through the difficult times. We need to bear up under pressure. That actually builds convictions within us. Look at James 1, verses 2 and 2 through 4. James says to the church, Consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance. Perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking in anything. Perseverance is this attitude of remaining steadfast or remaining under pressure. To persevere is to stay under the pressure, stay under the heat, to not escape from difficult times and try to run away or run around it but it's to understand that God can use pressure and trouble as the, one of the most effective shaping tools in our lives to create some things in us, to build steel and convictions within us. So endurance actually develops us. Another thing is endurance allows us to enjoy God's blessing. Look at what James says in chapter 5. Brothers, as an example, this is to the church. Brothers, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets, he says, who spoke in the name of the Lord. Anytime we start thinking, why me? Or it's not fair. Or how come I'm going through this? He says, think about the prophets who endured and look at what came about. Verse 11, as you know, we consider blessed those who persevered. You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. You see, the Lord is in sovereign control over our lives. Galatians 6, Paul says this to the church in Galatians. He says, let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time. See, God tells time in a different. He tells time very different than us. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. So He's saying, hang in there. Maybe God is using trouble right now in your life because He's trying to shape some things in your life. It's not because He doesn't like you. It's not because things are horrible in your life. It's because 
Trouble is a part of life, and He's using it to refine us, to build something in us. Here's another lesson related to the promised return of Christ. With the end in mind, the fact that Jesus is going to return, that's what we know for sure. He's going to return. He'll wrap up history. These verses clue us in on how to get prepared. First, we must get ready right now. We often want to think about what's going to happen down the road in the future, in the very end. I think God wants us to be way more concerned with how we handle life right here, right now, the way we treat each other, the way we respond to God. Look at 2 Peter 3. Peter, one of the main church leaders, he said this to the church. He said, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief. A thief comes when you really least expect it. You don't expect a thief to come when you're waiting there with your shotgun ready. You, you know he's coming when you're unprepared. That's how, that's how Christ is going to return. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar. The elements will be destroyed by fire. And the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Here's one of the key verses. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? That's the key question. Who should we be? What, what kinds of things should, we, should Christ find in our lives when He shows up? You ought to live holy and godly lives. Verse 12 says, As you look forward to the day of God and speed its coming, that day will bring about the destruction of the heavens by fire and the elements will melt in the heat. But in keeping with His promise, we are looking forward to a new heaven and a new earth, the home of righteousness. Again, don't worry about how it will go down and what we might have to endure. Verse 14 says, So then, dear friends, since you're looking forward to this, make every effort to be found spotless. That has to do with our morals. Be spotless. Be blameless. We don't want to have something come up that's this hidden issue revealed about us in the end. He says, be spotless, be blameless, and be at peace with Him. Make sure you're at peace with God. Make sure you're ready. That's the key. Are you ready? Are you ready if He were to come back? When He comes back, will you be ready? The next thing is this. We can help as many people as possible to get ready, which is why we exist as a church. Our doors, we want our doors to be wide open so more and more people can get ready so when Christ returns, they're prepared to go to heaven. This is the greatest privilege that God gives us as a church to be used by Him to help all people to know Jesus Christ and become fully devoted followers of Him. Look at 2 Peter 3.8.9. Another great verse that gives us a great deal of hope. It says, But do not forget this one, dear, one thing, dear friends. With, a, with the Lord, a day is like a thousand Years and a thousand years are like a day. See, God is not confined by our deadlines or our expectations. He, he runs the show outside of time. He runs it all. He does not tell time like we do. Verse 9 says, The Lord is not slow in keeping His promises. Or in keeping His promises. This is referring to His return. As some understand slowness, He is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. You see, each day that He has not returned gives us another opportunity to connect with more people who we can introduce Him to. And, and that's a privilege that He's given us. So He doesn't want us to live our whole lives just for ourselves, making sure that we're ready and not caring about the people around us. He wants us to have our hearts and our lives open for other people to introduce them to our Savior. God wants us to reach out that none should perish. As a church, this is our opportunity. So let's make the best use of our time. Let's not waste our time trying to figure out just the mysterious things or just dive deep into things that are behind the veil. But let's, let's deal rightly with what He's revealed very clearly to us 
Let's live our lives in line with the Scripture that He's made very clear to us about what He would want. In a minute, our ushers are going to come around. If you would, take out that white card again, the connection card. On the back, you'll see there's three next steps on the left. I encourage you to maybe check one of these as an application to today's message. The first one just says, find the answer to the question, if the end were to come tomorrow, am I ready? Maybe you've never really asked that question. I'd encourage you to do that and check that. And we'll pray for you this week. The second next step would be this, what am I currently doing to help others get ready? Maybe spend some time reflecting on this question. Am I currently concerned for the people around me who don't know Christ, who are in the process of investigating, do I care? What do I need to do about that? And then the last thing, maybe identify any pattern in my life that needs to change. This is really related to when he arrives, for us to be able to, to look him in the eyes and to say, I'm ready. I, I've, I've lived a victorious life. I've tried to walk with you. I'm not a perfect person, but I've yielded my life to you. I'm trying to, to live in a way that's pleasing to you. There might be something in our lives that needs to change. Let's pray as the band comes up and, and we continue in worship. Father, thank You so much for Your Word. Thank You for this uh, several past few weeks as we've looked into this book of Revelation. God, it really is a book full of mystery, but we thank You that there's, there's a lot in it that is very clear. Lord, and that we can't escape from what You've made clear to us, God. And so, Lord, I pray that if You're speaking to anybody here, about their life, about eternal things. Lord, I pray that they would do business with You very soon, God. Lord, today that they'd even want to nail things down, maybe have a conversation with somebody about their own life. Lord, we ask You to protect us, God, through times of trouble. We ask You for the strength to endure the things that we're facing right now. Lord, and we thank You that You um, are working in our midst. Lord, that You're changing our lives. That We're encouraged, God, as we think about where You've taken our lives and, and where You've taken our church and the things You've allowed us to experience together. Lord, we pray that You would have favor on us and allow us to reach many, many more people in the cities around us, Lord. Help us to bring about change, Lord, in this community and be a part of Your work here. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.